This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Religious freedom is a frontline issue and often a headline issue these days, and one of its most ardent defenders is Luke Goodrich, who serves as vice president and senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Mr. Goodrich earned his baccalaureate from Wheaton College and his law degree from the University of Chicago. During his time at Beckett, Mr. Goodrich and his team have won major victories before the United States Supreme Court, including the cases known as Little Sisters of the Poor versus Burwell and Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. He's known for his numerous media appearances. Just this year, he authored the book Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America, which was awarded Book of the Year by the Gospel Coalition and World Magazine. Mr. Goodrich, welcome to Thinking in Public, and uh, you have experience not only, of course, as an author and scholar dealing with these issues, but also as a litigant, as a lawyer, deeply involved in these issues and uh, in many of the crucial cases of recent years. Your book entitled Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America is, is one of those titles that isn't particularly dated. I think you could possibly have uh, published a book with that title in 1789, but there is a particular urgency to it in 2019, 2020. Why this book right now? Why that title? Well, as I've, as you mentioned, I've had the privilege of litigating religious freedom cases on the front lines for over a decade. And in the course of my work, I've had a chance to speak with a lot of Christians, a lot of Americans who are very concerned about religious freedom. And there are really two events that prompted me to write this book. One was about a decade ago, my church in Washington, D.C. asked me to preach a sermon about religious freedom because we were doing a summer series on Christ and culture. And that really forced me as a religious liberty litigator on the front lines to think about this issue more biblically and theologically and ask, what does scripture have to say about this? And the sermon was was very helpful uh, to our church community. And I just kind of dwelt on that for a while. And then a few years later, I was at a gathering of Christian leaders uh, on the eve of the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case. And these are leaders of denominations, of religious colleges and universities, and major social service organizations. And in that room, uh, the fear around religious freedom was palpable. There was so much fear about what was coming down the line and not a lot of practical knowledge. And so I realized at that point, you know, having spent a decade litigating these cases, uh, maybe I would have something to add to the conversation. So that's why I wrote Free to Believe. Just wanted to take my front lines experience litigating religious freedom cases and help ordinary Americans, especially Christians, understand why does religious freedom matter? How is it threatened in our culture uniquely today? And what can we do about it? In a bit, we'll talk about the uh, new development here, the uh, most urgent, which is that inevitable collision between the newly defined sexual liberties and religious liberty, uh, something which, by the way, the uh, the LGBTQ activists saw before I think a lot of Christians did. They They understood the consequences of what they were demanding and what they've now largely accomplished. But but going backwards in time, let, let's just look at the biggest picture across the tapestry of American history. If you were to write about uh, Supreme Court religious liberty litigation, uh, my theory is that if you were to uh, even say that was your business or your, or your expertise, say, uh, 100 years ago, 
people would have a hard time defining exactly what that would mean. I mean, the, the, the religious liberty cases that have come before the Supreme Court or, or that came in the first century of the American experience, they were largely uh, unpredictable. They, they, they didn't follow a particular pattern. And, of course, my argument is they basically do follow a pattern now. But, but what changed and when? That's a, that's a huge historical question. What changed and when? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of major historical changes, uh, but I would say one of the biggest ones was the Supreme Court's decision in a case called Everson in the 1940s, and that was when the Supreme Court decided that the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, the part that says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, uh, that that could be enforced against the states. Right. And that really kicked off a... Uh, decades-long wrestling by the Supreme Court with the meaning of the First Amendment. It really made the Supreme Court one of the major uh, battlegrounds of religious freedom issues, where before these were handled mostly by legislatures and by state courts. Uh, So that was a huge change in our jurisprudence. Uh, And then there have been a number of significant changes since then that I'd also be happy to go into. No, I think you're exactly right to point to Everson, but I want to put that in the larger context. So in, in the larger context... That particular religious liberty precedent uh, basically fell in line, perhaps inevitably fell in line, with uh, the greater compromises of federalism that had taken place with a more progressivist direction of the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary, and uh, frankly, the uh, ambition to expand the powers of the federal government. So it, it wasn't as if that came out of a vacuum. It, uh, it, it really was uh, uh, the next step or the next shoe to fall, so to speak. Uh, in the Supreme Court and the federal government, uh, basically uh, taking on, irrigating to itself uh, an entire new uh, area of responsibility. That's absolutely right. We've seen a trend over our history toward more and more centralization of power, uh, more and more power at the federal level. And now, today, we're seeing that play out in the field of religious freedom. And, I mean, obviously, one of the hugest religious freedom conflicts in recent years was over the contraception mandate. Right. My firm had the privilege of handling the Hobby Lobby and Little Sisters of the Poor cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. That was an instance where the federal government, under the Obama administration, issued really an, an unprecedented regulation, forcing religious organizations across the country to use their own health insurance plans to fund abortion-inducing drugs. And we'd never really seen uh, at that uh, wide of a scale and at that federal level that kind of an assault on traditional Christian beliefs. Uh, And that's a major religious freedom issue today. Yeah, and you used one word there that triggers another major consideration and background. You used the word regulation. And uh, indeed, the uh, Obama contraception mandate was not an act of Congress uh, signed into law by the president. Uh, but rather on the authority of the Affordable Care Act, uh, that responsibility was delegated to the Department of Health and Human Services, and it was through the regulatory process. So we, we also have the background development of the administrative state. So we're actually dealing in many ways, uh, as you were in in, um, in those two cases, with, uh, with a regulation that had the force of law, but had not actually been a matter of legislation. That's absolutely right. And we see this, you know, it's not just the contraception mandate where federal regulations are creating religious freedom conflicts. Uh, I'm still litigating a case today 
uh, based on a regulation that came out at the end of the Obama administration, where HHS decided that all doctors and hospitals across right. the country would be required to participate in and perform uh, gender transition procedures, even when it violates their religious beliefs and their medical judgment, or else they would be deemed to be discriminating based on gender identity. And that was a, a massive overreach by the Obama administration. Uh, we fortunately got a federal court to put that regulation on hold, and the Trump administration is currently reconsidering it. But that's just one more illustration of your point that federal agencies nowadays, nowadays play a critical role when it comes to religious freedom. Now, I think you and I would be in absolute agreement that a uh, state-established church of any form is a bad idea. Yes. And uh, you make that clear in your book. I appreciate that. I am in wholehearted agreement. But to say that something is a bad idea is not to say that it is, per se, state-by-state, state, unconstitutional. It reminds me of the uh, the the uh, story about uh, Justice Antonin Scalia. The, the late justice said that he wanted a rubber stamp that could simply declare stupid but not unconstitutional. And uh, as someone actually, when I, I've cited that so often, someone actually made one of those for me. Um, I, I, I have no opportunity to act judicially using that stamp, but boy, do I think of it logically many times. But when you, when you think about this, the United States Constitution, and you detail this in your book, makes very clear in the Establishment Clause that Congress may make no law concerning an establishment of religion. But as you point out, in the debate over the Constitution itself, Congress was not an accidental word. That's exactly right. At the time of the founding, at the time of the drafting and ratification of the First Amendment, there was a vigorous debate in the colonies about an establishment of religion. Nine of the 13 colonies had established churches. Some thought it was a good thing. Some thought it was a bad thing. And ultimately, what the uh, convention decided was a federalism solution, that Congress would be limited when it came to legislating on the question of religion. Congress couldn't set up a national established church, but Congress also couldn't interfere with state established churches. And you know, that was how it was, was originally understood in the 1780s, 1790s. And then over time, uh, all of the states eventually voluntarily disestablished their churches. Uh, but to nowadays, one of the big problems is that most of us, it's been so long since we've dealt with an established church, we don't actually know or remember what an establishment of religion is. And yet that had a definite, well-defined meaning at the time of the founding, where the government was controlling the doctrine and personnel of the church. It was mandating attendance in the established church. It was giving exclusive financial support to the established church. And it was limiting worship and political participation by those who were members of dissenting churches. Uh, so that's what an establishment was at the time of the founding. And unfortunately, over time, the Supreme Court has migrated its interpretation of the Establishment Clause to even stamp out this innocuous government recognition of how religion is an important aspect of our history and culture. Right. A more uh, sub substantive uh, redefinition of establishment Absolutely. Uh, rather than concrete. Um, as we're thinking about these issues, keeping our narrative straight, we've gone from the, the Constitution and uh, the definition, especially of the Establishment Clause, and, uh, and then we've tracked through a considerable territory of American history to the beginning of the progressivist era, with the federal government taking on all kinds of responsibilities, reversing the logic of federalism, 
And, of course, uh, jumping out of the constitutional limitation on the federal government of enumerated powers. And uh, and then I ask you where the turning point was, and you pointed to Everson. So we're looking after the Second World War at the fact that uh, there is another, uh, historically in the 20th century, a second great expansion of government power and of the logic of federal authority. So Everson fits within that, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And, and it does so by, uh, by basically deciding that no state can allow school prayer and the reading of Scripture uh, by the time you put the cases together throughout the 1950s and 60s. Uh, not even a moment of silence uh, by the time these cases basically come to a conclusion uh, that such an act, even student-initiated, uh, would, uh, would be a violation of the Constitution. That's right. 60s, 70s, 80s, the Supreme Court aggressively pursued a, a separationist interpretation of the Establishment Clause that has no real relation to the original meaning of the Establishment Clause, uh, struck down a number of uh, very innocuous practices, just kind of recognizing religion as a natural part of human culture, and really made the First Amendment into something that was hostile to public expression of religion in a way the founders never intended. Uh, but I'd say the, the good news is the Supreme Court is trending back the other direction, trending back toward a more historic understanding of the Establishment Clause, uh, and even trending back towards more robust protection of free exercise of religion. And so you know, my, my firm, Beckett, in the last quarter century, we have a 90% win rate across all of our cases and undefeated at the Supreme Court and seen a number of really great decisions from the Supreme Court in recent years. So those are some of the some of the positive trends we're seeing nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. You're not writing without hope, but you are writing with a sense of uh, of urgency and uh, and frankly a, a rather sober-minded assessment of of where we stand and where we could stand should uh, should things go otherwise. I want to use two other decisions uh in order to kind of set the stage for getting us to um the most urgent part of the crisis. And, uh, and those are the, the Lemon decision and the Smith decision. But let, let's go to Lemon first, because it produced the now infamous Lemon test. And uh, I, I, I think we need to talk about that in order to go further. Yeah, so Lemon versus Kurtzman in, in the early 1970s was a case involving uh, aid, government aid, financial aid to religious schools. And the Supreme Court kind of cobbled together what it called a three-part test for looking for violations of the Establishment Clause, basically looking at what's the purpose of the government action, uh, what is the effect of the government action, does it advance or endorse religion, and then third, does the government action unduly entangle the government in religion. And you say those three parts, you know, none of them sounds like a, a horrible idea, uh, but the problem is that test is extremely subjective, and it really gave the court, the Supreme Court and lower courts, license to reach almost any result they pleased in Establishment yeah. Clause cases, and often took on a very anti-religion cast. So that's what produced through the 70s and 80s and, and into the 90s some of the very religion-hostile decisions from the Supreme Court. Well, you uh, you mentioned the word subjective, and, and that's probably the best word for it, but the, the other word is kind of uh, psychoanalytic. I mean, in that first part of the Lemon Test about a secular purpose— it's amazing how much has been dragged into the federal courts uh, trying to show some kind of hidden agenda, uh, you know, even trying to more or less read the minds of, of those who uh, 
who uh, at the local level or the state level or a county or, or, or a, gover- a branch of the government, uh, it, it, it re- it's not subjective just in terms of the judge or justices. It becomes a matter of trying to read the subjective state of mind of individual legislators. That's right. The famous quote was this, this test asks for, quote, judicial psychoanalysis of a drafter's heart of hearts, unquote. So we have to figure out, you know, what this in what was in the heart of hearts of the multi-member legislature when they were enacting a law. And then an, another layer of subjectivity comes with the, the second part of the Lemon Test, where the, the court looks at what was the effect of the law. And the court says, has to posit this, what it calls a reasonable observer. It has to kind of imagine what a reasonable person would think when they see this religious symbol or hear about this funding for a religious group. And lo and behold, the reasonable observer always ends up looking like the judge or justice who holds the deciding vote. And these cases are basically decided not based on the written text of the Constitution, but on the predilections of the judges who are deciding it. Absolutely. I believe the justice of the Supreme Court who coined that phrase most memorably was uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. And uh, even one of his colleagues at the time said that evidently uh, Justice Holmes' understanding of a reasonable man is by no coincidence Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, that's, that, that's the way it works. Well, the uh, the Smith decision is the other one, because the Lemon uh, decision uh, there in the 70s, it set up a basic hostility on the part of the court, because that test, as you say, that three-part test about purpose and effect and entanglement, it, it appears innocuous, but it's actually stacking the deck, because it's almost impossible uh, especially on effect. This is an issue that I've, I've tracked in these cases for so long. Let's, let, let's say that an unintended or ancillary effect of a law just might be, arguably, that some religious ministry receives some benefit. Um, that, that, that's an almost impossible, I mean, just even if it makes the economy better, it's almost impossible for a law to have a purely secular effect. That's right. And I had the chance to litigate this just recently on an issue that probably affects you personally and and many of your listeners, and that's housing allowances for ministers of the gospel. So uh, pastors all across the country uh, can take an exclusion of their income uh, when the church pays them a housing allowance to, to obtain housing. And an atheist group challenged this provision of the tax code, which has been around for over half a century, Uh, as a violation of the separation of church and state. They said, hey, this is benefiting churches and ministers. And a federal judge struck that down as unconstitutional. And that would have had a multi-billion dollar effect on churches and ministers across the country. Uh, And so I had the privilege of appealing that ruling and arguing it in the Seventh Circuit and basically telling the court, like, look, when you assess whether a, a, a law or regulation is benefiting religion, you have to figure out what your baseline is. So yes, of course, uh, ministers benefit when they receive this uh, tax-exempt housing allowance, but there are all kinds of secular workers who can also receive uh, tax-free housing allowances as well. So there's there's a baseline problem that you have to address first. There's also just the concern about, a legitimate concern about separation of church and state, and do we really want the IRS looking at how ministers use their homes and and deciding whether that's really necessary for the mission of the church? And so fortunately, the court ultimately agreed with us and, and upheld that longstanding tax exemption for ministers and said, hey, this really is neutral. Uh, but it didn't rely just on the lemon test. 
Uh, it relied, importantly as we urged it, on history and the historical meaning and historical practices under the Establishment Clause, and that gives a more objective basis for deciding these kinds of cases. Luke Goodrich has said that he has written this book in order to help ordinary Christians to think through these issues and to be aware of the challenges we face. But he's also writing in order to define terms. And of course, he's making many arguments along the way. That's what makes this a very interesting conversation. Okay, continuing in the line of our, of our narrative here, Uh, We've got to talk about the Smith decision. You do so in your book because my argument is that this really becomes the hinge with what follows uh, as a congressional response. But we'll get to that in a moment. First of all, the Smith decision, what was it and uh, why does it matter so much to this discussion? Yeah, So the Smith decision is crucial uh, as we shift from our discussion about the Establishment Clause. Smith is about the Free Exercise Clause, says Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. And this was a Supreme Court decision in 1990 involving Native Americans. And Oregon had a criminal law that made it illegal to possess or use peyote. Uh, Now, peyote is the central sacrament of many Native American religious practices. So you have a government law that criminalizes the central sacrament of a religious group. And the question was, Does this prohibit the free exercise of religion? And you would think that criminalizing the central sacrament of religion does prohibit the free exercise of religion. But in a very surprising decision, the Supreme Court, uh, led by Justice Scalia, said no, this does not prohibit the free exercise of religion. And it sort of reinterpreted the free exercise clause as exclusively like a a non-discrimination provision. It said as long as the law is neutral and generally applicable— Uh, As long as the government is not out to get religious people or targeting religious people, uh, the free exercise clause really doesn't come into play. Uh, So this really gutted the free exercise clause in a very real sense, made it very difficult to prevail under free exercise claims under the Constitution, and has had a longstanding negative impact on religious freedom. Absolutely. And by the way, you just just passed an invisible integrity test in that answer. Uh, when you mentioned Justice Scalia, because I have such great admiration for Justice Scalia, and uh, yet he was the author of that majority opinion. You didn't mention that in your book, so I I was waiting to see how you were going to describe it. But it does remind us that when you're looking even at individual justices and even someone with the titanic influence of an Antonin Scalia, um, over the course of a long life and uh, and career on the Supreme Court— even a justice's mind can change over time on an issue of this consequence. And Justice Scalia was the author of this majority opinion. And so far as I know, he really didn't change his mind uh, on this, uh, according to his colleagues. Uh, he really thought that it was illogical that, uh, that prisoners in particular uh, should have a religious liberty claim to use peyote. And he was basically willing uh, to redefine religious liberty in order to get to that conclusion. I, I hate to put it that way, but th- I mean, that's the effect. Yeah. I, and I mean, he gets credit for uh, integrity in the sense of adhering to his own principles. Uh, but I think his decision in Smith was deeply misguided, both as a textual matter and an original matter. And it's gotten a lot of criticism from both sides of the, of the judicial spectrum. Right. 
ever since. Uh, but fortunately, it, it, you know, the silver lining here is that the Supreme Court's bad decision in Smith did prompt Congress to respond. Uh, Congress, uh, three years later, passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act by a huge bipartisan margin. And that Religious Freedom Restoration Act is now a key civil rights law that has protected religious liberty for people of all faiths, including our, our Supreme Court victories for Hobby Lobby and for the Little Sisters of the Poor. So the, the Constitution is not the only protection of religious freedom. And that bad decision in Smith led to a good law, uh, which goes by RIFRA for short. Yeah, I was, uh, I was very involved in that. And uh, that law took place the very year I uh, entered office as president here at Southern Seminary. And uh, that's where the pulse quickens a bit in our discussion, because this is where the most current debates are hottest. I mean, you, you now have people who voted for RIFRA in 1993 who are basically making the opposite argument in 2019. Uh, you, you are looking at a massive reversal in one generation of, uh, of especially amongst, uh, uh, I'll state it bluntly, uh, Democrats uh, who see religious liberty as defined in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as, uh, as incompatible with higher goals they've adopted since. That's absolutely right. And in 25 years, there has been a massive, massive shift in the understanding of religious freedom. And I, I address this in my book, Free to Believe, kind of what, why this shift has taken place. Yeah. And I think you can, you can look at a few different currents. Uh, but the biggest thing is that longstanding Christian beliefs about absolute truth, about abortion and human life, and about sexual autonomy, you know, long-standing Christian beliefs that may not have been uniformly held, but at least weren't controversial throughout most of our history, those beliefs are now viewed as a threat to progress in modern culture. Uh, you also see religion playing a less important role in the everyday lives of many Americans, and an increase in religious diversity. And you put all those things together, uh, and that has basically flip-flopped uh, support for religious freedom, particularly among progressives, where at least when it comes to Christian beliefs about life and about marriage, uh, religious freedom is now viewed as a threat to progress in modern culture. Yeah, I really appreciate the candor with which you address this uh, in, in, in your book. I have a book coming out in 2020 entitled The Gathering Storm, in, in which I deal with it with a, a very similar argument. My argument is this. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Western elites, especially, say, the, uh, the French revolutionaries, the Jacobin tradition, the, the idea was that uh, religion itself, any form of theism, was antithetical to human freedom and, and had to be overthrown, which it, it was quite graphically during the French Revolution. Um, the, the American uh, tradition, uh, uh, rooted in the English-speaking Enlightenment rather than the more radical Continental Enlightenment, uh, came to a different conclusion, as as you mentioned in the book, the founders believing in the utility of religion, uh, the necessity even of some kind of religious faith in order to give a moral basis for the society. Uh, so my theory is this, that uh, that the basic framework of Orthodox Christianity was recognized early by the European elites as incompatible with their understanding of human flourishing. It was not considered that by the English-speaking elites but rather was seen to have some functional advantages. But the current elites in the English-speaking world have now joined those old European elites in believing, no, after all, Orthodox Christianity is incompatible uh, with uh, human flourishing and, uh, and, and human liberation. And I think that's the shape of the urgency. I think, 
I think that English-speaking project has changed when it comes to those who are in control of, of the culture. Uh, and, and I mean that primarily in academia uh, and, uh, and uh, entertainment, uh, all the cultural signaling. And, uh, and, and so the difference is that I think our um, elite culture is willing to tolerate certain forms of spirituality. Even you, you can have a brand name. You, could, you can have the Episcopal Church, uh, which would not have fit the French model. But, uh, but, but you have to surrender all of those doctrinal issues that are associated with Orthodox Christianity and thus uh, incompatible with, uh, with human flourishing and human liberation. Yeah, that that sounds absolutely right, and I look forward to seeing your book because I I address a similar phenomenon in my book, and I, I would say you know you can hear a lot of Christians uh, fear secularism, sort of anti-religion, but I think what we see today is our culture and the elites are increasingly drawing a distinction between good religion, what they view as good religion, and bad religion. Right. Uh, good religion is private, stays in the church or their home. It's tolerant, it accepts other beliefs, it's relativistic, it doesn't tell others they're wrong, and it's non-discriminatory. It accepts people for who they really are. And then bad religion in the eyes of our culture is public. It affects all of life. It's not confined to the four walls of the home or the church. It affects our schools and our businesses. It makes absolute truth claims, not afraid to say others are wrong. It's evangelistic, it tries to persuade, and it makes moral claims and is willing to condemn what it views as sin. And nowadays, our culture is very willing to condemn what it considers bad religion and oppress it, but it won't really lay a finger on what it views as good religion. Yeah, uh, you know, Ross Douthis made a very similar argument in terms of how the culture views good Catholicism and bad Catholicism. Uh, right. following a more or less the same logic. I think you do an outstanding job in your book, by the way, of laying that out honestly and uh, and, and and extremely clearly. I, I do want to argue, however, that that is a form of secularization. And uh, so to, to look at, at, at a theorist like uh, Peter Berger, he would simply say that looks like an American form of secularization, pluralization, and uh, and the shifting of terms such that you really do, it, so long as you hold a private belief, who cares? Uh, right. You know, they're not going to strap you into an interrogation chair to find out if there might be some shred of theism in you. But uh, so long as you keep your mouth shut and don't try to speak about these things in public, I think of Frank Bruni, the columnist for The New York Times, who said, keep your religion in your hearts, in your heads and in your pews, you know, and right. I think he said your homes and in, in, in your hearts, in your homes and in your pews. Uh, uh, just don't let it get out of that or you're out of bounds. That's right. And that, as you say, that does have the effect of secularizing the public square and of our culture. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a softer form of secularism uh, or secularization, right. we should say here. It's a softer form because it doesn't require you to take a church sign down. It, it, it doesn't even uh, you know, require you to, at this point, pay taxes on your church property. It just says you may have no claim to public consequence that isn't in keeping with. So the, again, they're glad to have, the secularists are very glad to have um, the uh, Episcopal Church or the United Church of Christ or uh, the Unitarian Universalist Association show up and, um, and even seek to influence public policy because they'll, they'll, they are in keeping with the spirit of the age. That's right. Um, one of the most important uh, uh, aspects of your book is that I think you speak with unusual honesty to Christians about our own responsibility in, in dealing with uh, issues of religious liberty and engagement with the public square. 
And uh, I, I, I want to credit you with that, because it, it's not as if you write this book saying there are big, bad, secularist enemies out there, uh, and we've got to raise up the defenses and, and go to court and beat them. Uh, you're willing to go to court, and congratulations on your record in court, by the way, and, and uh, I have great appreciation for the Beckett Fund and, and, and what you do. But you're also speaking to Christians about our responsibility, and, and you expand that out uh, as a Christian uh, in in terms of our own responsibility as gospel Christians, but then uh, also how to be smart uh, or smarter uh, in the midst of uh, of these challenges. So speak about that first part. Uh, w- w- why do Christians bear a particular responsibility uh, as Christians in the way we engage these questions? Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of Christians approach religious freedom first and foremost as a political issue or a legal issue. Uh, without always realizing that it is, before that, it's a biblical issue and a theological issue. And so there's there's a couple different ways we as Christians can easily get religious freedom wrong. Uh, one way, I, I call them the pilgrims in my book, is to treat religious freedom primarily as a political tool for maintaining a privileged place for Christianity in society. Uh, and, and then the other main way to get it wrong, I call the martyrs. It's kind of a reaction against the pilgrims and to kind of dismiss religious freedom as a significant issue and kind of treat it as a culture war issue that we don't really need to fight about and uh, say, you know, Christians flourish under persecution and treat it as a luxury that we can kind of abandon lightly. Uh, and then you have other Christians, I call them the believers, uh, the beginners, I'm sorry, who are just sort of waking up to the issue of religious freedom. They may hear about it more often in the news and, and want to start thinking about it, but they're, they're really not sure what to think. And so I've written Free to Believe for all of these groups and really to say religious freedom is not just this political tool for protecting ourselves. Uh, it's not a luxury that we can abandon lightly, and it's not just kind of a good idea we don't need to pay attention to, but rather religious freedom is a basic issue of biblical justice rooted in the nature of God and the nature of man. And we need to reclaim the theological foundation for religious freedom as Christians, and then take that with us as we engage in the cultural and legal issues. You know, what are the modern threats, and how do we respond to those threats? So that was really my my goal with Free to Believe, is to start equipping us, first biblically, then legally and culturally, and lastly, practically, with what do we do about it. Yeah, I think you're, you're, uh, you're right that there's a typology of how these responses break down. Uh, I wouldn't exactly uh, label it the way you did, but nonetheless, we'll use your labels for the conversation here. I, uh, I don't know what the pilgrims would do with your category of pilgrims in this category, but they're not here <laughs> to argue, so w- we can just move on. But uh, I, I, and, and you're not saying it's wrong. I mean, clearly, look at your job. You're, you're not saying it's wrong to go to court, but you are saying that uh, that we don't go primarily on the basis of our commitment even to the U.S. Constitution, but because of deeper theological and biblical commitments, beginning in with the Imago Dei, love of That's neighbor. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's, it's absolutely not wrong to go to court or else I'm wrong every day, but it matters a great deal why we go to court and how we go to court. And even before we get to court, how we talk about these issues within our yeah. communities and with our neighbors. And I think as Christians, it's, it's vital to enter into the conversation of religious freedom uh, rooted in a biblical worldview, understanding that bi- religious freedom is an issue of biblical justice for all people, uh, and also that we're called to enter into the, the religious freedom space 
not from a posture of fear. Uh, there's so much right. fear and, and even sometimes fear-mongering when it comes to religious freedom, you know, saying the sky is falling, we're gonna, our rights are going to be taken away, you know, code red, emergency. And yes, I mean, we've already talked about the dramatic shift in our culture the last 25 years, and there are major religious freedom challenges ahead that we as Christians have never faced in this country before. But our overarching posture in entering into these conflicts needs to be a posture of hope rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, who said in the Gospel of John, in this world, you will have trouble. And he was a realist. And when it comes to religious freedom, we will have trouble. But in the very next breath, he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. And as Christians, we have so much confidence in the ultimate victory of Christ that's already been won, that it really needs to inform everything we do about religious freedom. Well, well said, and of course it does. I, uh, I, I have a little bit of concern at this point because of very contemporary controversies that are going on. Uh, uh, discussions in the last couple of years amongst American evangelicals and Roman Catholics and, uh, and, and others. Uh, there are those on the left who are accusing conservatives of doing exactly what you say, and I don't think it's entirely fair, to say the least. Uh, they're saying that uh, evangelical Christians, conservative uh, believers in the United States are in a state of panic. Uh, we're recently used in a, in a New York Times editorial and are operating out of fear. Um, I think we have to be really careful because we are not saying that things are not as bad as they look. Uh, so I want to be real clear about that. Things are just about as bad as they look. Uh, but but we're not thinking merely out of that frame. Uh, we, we are operating out of uh, the full wealth of Christian truth and the power of the gospel. Uh, so I, I hope I'm making sense when I say I think we have to clarify uh, the argument that way, because there are those who are trying to say things aren't as bad as they look. And on many particulars of just fact, they are as bad as they look. Uh but panic, you know, panic rightly diagnosed is always the wrong thing for Christians. But uh, being accused of panic when you say there's going to be an inevitable collision when it comes to Christian colleges and universities with uh, 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 sexual orientation and gender identity laws, that's not panic, that's honesty. That's right. We need a sober and well-informed, educated look at what the threats actually are, because there are very real threats. I mean, I'm, I'm litigating them today. I'm, I'm working on behalf of a religious adoption agency, and the city of Philadelphia is shutting them down because of their religious beliefs about marriage. I'm representing a religious school in Indianapolis that's facing lawsuits, multiple yep. lawsuits, because they declined to hire teachers who are in same-sex marriages. Uh, we just had a case granted by the Supreme Court today where the Ninth Circuit said the government can interfere with a religious school's decision about who can teach religion in religious schools. So we have a number of very significant threats. And what I'm trying to do in my book, Free to Believe, is really give ordinary Christians, ordinary Americans, a realistic assessment of what those threats are. Uh, because yeah. you know we're not facing, you know, pastors are not going to go to jail anytime in the next decade uh, for declining to officiate same-sex weddings. That's not one of the threats, even though some, some people will sometimes bring that up. Sure. But there are a wide host of other threats when it comes to religious freedom. And you know, on the left, they might point to like, oh, you had one case involving a baker who wouldn't bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. And they would try to, you know, try to 
say that that's the only aspect of the problem, but really that's just the tip of the iceberg. And there are so many other issues that are already playing out in court today. And if we want to enter into these conversations in an informed, sober, and realistic way, we need to understand what the issues are. Yeah, and we have to be uh, vigilant uh, and alert all the time, because even as you're speaking about, uh, and, and I, I'm incredibly thankful for the, uh, the record you guys have at the Supreme Court, but we also have to recognize that had any one of those decisions gone the other way, the consequences would have been truly dire. You, but I mean, Beckett does not take unimportant cases. You're looking for uh, appellate cases with precedential value. I get that. That and I respect that. But that also means that uh, the downside of losing is that uh, it could be massive. So if you take uh, the recent uh, Bladensburg case uh, about the war memorial cross there in Maryland, uh, had that gone the other way, we'd really be looking at case by case, municipality by by park and uh, and and facility, we'd we'd just be seeing the the stripping of all religious symbolism from uh, American public space. That didn't happen, but I think most American Christians have very little idea how close it came just in the last several months. Yeah, many of these cases have been decided, you know, very closely, and there are very real risks if the cases go the wrong way. Uh, One thing I'm trying to encourage Christians to ask, um, you know, through my book is, you know, what if what if we lose some of these cases? What if we start to lose? Uh, Why does that matter? Uh, Does it matter because we won't be winning the culture war anymore? Does it matter because we won't be on top of the, you know, on top of the heap? Or uh, what I argue is it matters because it's unjust. Uh, when the government shuts down a Christian adoption agency because they don't place children with same-sex couples uh, and stops the good work of that ministry, uh, children go without homes. And that is unjust when the government does that. And when the government forces a religious school to hire teachers who uh, repudiate the core religious beliefs of the school, that is unjust. Uh, But much of Scripture was written to Christians who were facing just those sorts of injustices, and even worse. And so I think as, as American Christians, we've been so blessed to live in a country that has guarded religious liberty so well for so long, uh, we can sometimes forget that so much of Scripture was written to the persecuted church. And so I devote a number of chapters just looking at what does Scripture have to say to Christians who are facing persecution, and what can we take away from that uh, in our everyday lives today? Yeah, even that word persecution is theologically difficult because uh, I find it rather uh, embarrassing to talk about persecution, even in the terms we're talking about it here, even with dire um, constitutional and legal effects in the United States. When you consider their brothers and sisters around the world who are in danger of losing their heads uh, simply for uh, allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. So so the word persecution is is too big an umbrella for us. Right now, I'm trying to get American evangelicals not to use that word about any current or foreseeable threat to the church in the United States. It, it, we have opposition, but persecution is, uh, is, is a word that uh, I, th- I think it just in, in humility as a church historian uh, ought to be used uh, uh, sparingly. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And we do 
often throw around that that term in a very loose way. And I think it's important still to to look at Scripture and, and what does it say right. to Christians who are suffering, because that can so inform uh, the, the types of conflicts, the types of opposition that we face today. Yeah, at no point at any, uh, at, at any canonical book of Scripture was there envisioned a representative democracy that would define uh, liberty uh, as, uh, as we have known in this country since the, uh, the late 18th century. That, that's not envisioned in Scripture. Uh, I would argue that Scripture and the scriptural worldview helped to produce that uh, and uh, I'll make that argument uh, assiduously. But, uh, yeah, there, there, there's just very little direct guidance to Christians about how to vote because no no individual in the Old Testament or the New Testament in that sense uh, had a vote. This is new. That's right. That's right. There are I, – I have a chapter with over a dozen stories from Scripture on religious freedom conflicts. Right. And it's really fascinating to see the variety of stories in Scripture involving a conflict between the demands of government and the demands of God for people of faith. And even, you know, maybe just one we were talking about, persecution versus opposition. You know, all of us know the story of Daniel in the lion's den and also of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and being thrown in the fiery furnace for refusing to bow down to the golden statue. You know, those are stories of persecution, you know, like nothing we face here in America. But there's another story in Daniel uh, that's much similar, more similar to what we face. And that was where Daniel and his, and his colleagues were invited, were given the food from the king's table. They were given non-kosher food. And this is not the government out to get them, to force them to violate their conscience. And the government thought it was actually doing something beneficial for them. And yet Daniel and his friends looked at that food and said, we can't eat that. That's right. a violation of our of our conscience. And then their response is quite interesting as well. They didn't engage in civil disobedience. They didn't raise a huge hue and cry. They actually went quietly to the authority who was over them and negotiated for a religious freedom accommodation. You know, not in those terms, but they said, give us vegetables. Let us prove that our religious practices aren't uh, going to undermine your interests as the government. And the government official let them do that and basically gave them a religious accommodation. So it's a fascinating story. We don't often think about it as a religious freedom no. story, but there are many, many stories like that throughout both the Old and New Testament that I think can speak to the unique religious freedom challenges that we have today. You know, I appreciate the spirit of your book. You're basically calling on believers, even as you're, uh, you're educating believers about these, these challenges, you're calling upon Christians to be faithful and uh, and uh, vigilant uh, and kind, and uh, you know, rooted in the gospel. But uh, but there, there, there's a lack of belligerence, and uh, I think a basic respect and kindness uh, baked into this cake as you're uh, as you're presenting it. I, I think that's very helpful. I, I want to raise another issue with you that you that you uh, mentioned a moment ago. Press back just a little bit. So you were talking about uh, infringements upon religious liberty as uh, injustices, and you mentioned, uh, uh, as I recall, a, an adoption agency that or foster care that uh, would now not be able to serve children, and that the larger society would recognize that as the, as the loss of a public good uh, and, and being unjust. Um, I, I am 
always having to make the case for your second illustration, which is uh, a, a religious school and uh, its freedom to hire persons who hold to those religious convictions and not to be forced to hire people who do not hold to these religious convictions. Uh, I think I think there are going to be many people, uh, especially on the other side of the of the great cultural dynamic here, who are going to deny that that's a social good at all. That that a matter as a matter of fact, a Christian school being Christian, or for that matter, an Islamic school being Islamic, an Orthodox Jewish school being Jewish, in an Orthodox mode, is not contributing to the public good, uh, but is a is a threat to the public good. And I think that's one of the great intellectual shifts in our time. And uh, I, I, I just I just don't know that we're going to have much traction uh, with the people who are making uh, making many of these arguments by saying that uh, an authentically Christian school operating in an authentically Christian way is a public good. But we still but, but I, that's the business I'm in, and uh, I intend to keep doing it. Yeah, we're we're representing multiple Christian schools right now that are facing lawsuits precisely for that reason, because they want their teachers and leaders and administrators to be fully committed to their religious mission. And you're absolutely right. That's one of the major battlegrounds on religious freedom today. But the good news is there are some helpful Supreme Court precedents already on the books. Uh, One of those cases actually involved uh, the Mormon church uh, in my home state of Utah, and the Supreme Court decided nine to zero that right. the Constitution supports the right of religious organizations to hire people who are fully committed to their religious beliefs. And there is a there's a public case, a public argument to be made, even to those uh, who disagree with us. I mean, climate, you know, organizations in, devoted to environmentalism, you know, they're not going to hire climate change deniers. Or organizations devoted to uh, abortion, you know, Planned Parenthood is not going to be forced to hire uh, pro-life people. Uh, even liberals and progressives get that. You know, they get the idea that mission-driven organizations need to be able to hire people who support their mission. Well, they get it, except when they don't get it. They they certainly right. didn't get that point when it came to the uh, the Christian Legal Society, the Hastings School of Law. That's right, and and so they they get it as, at a theoretical matter. They're often unwilling to extend the same yeah. treatment to religious organizations. Uh, but the good news is that. That Mormon case, Amos, was 9-0 to zero from the Supreme Court. Uh, our Hosanna Tabor case in 2012 yeah. was 9-0 to zero from the Supreme Court. So there is some, there's some good precedent on the books that we can appeal to. Right, and Hosanna Tabor is just such an historic case. I, I, I think we'll be looking, um, if we have opportunity, uh, I mean that individually, if, if, if I'm alive several decades from now, I, I'm quite certain that Hosanna Tabor is going to be cited as a, as a key precedent. And, and I think in some ways, uh, kind of the uh, analog uh, or antipole to, uh, to the Lemon decision. Right. And I, I think that's, this is one of the areas where the Supreme Court is a bit different from our right. uh, cultural elite right now. And that's actually a good thing. I, and I think many of the cultural elites would be glad to force religious schools to hire people who reject their core religious practices. But there's good Supreme Court precedent on the books. I think the big pressure point is going to come in the area of government benefits, like government funding, right. uh, particularly like voucher programs. You're going to, in, in blue states, blue municipalities, you're going to see a lot of efforts in the next five to 10 years 
to place strings, you know, to attach strings to government benefits, to place conditions yeah. on government funding and telling religious organizations, well, you can, you can, sure, you can get vouchers, uh, but you can't discriminate if you want to get vouchers. And so uh, a lot of those issues are going to be litigated, or we're litigating one right now for the Religious Adoption Agency. Uh, but then a lot of those issues are just going to be religious organizations having to make tough choices. How important yeah. is it to you to get government funds? And can you make yourself independent from the need for government funds in order to maintain your religious mission? Well, you are... Uh... You're saying exactly what I would uh, hope you would say. You said it in the book, so I, I greatly appreciate that. Uh, the institution I lead receives absolutely no tax monies of any sort, participates in absolutely no uh, Title IV funding, uh, nothing, and and never has. And uh, the same thing is true at, at our undergraduate and graduate levels. Uh, there are only, I, I don't know, something like 12 institutions across the uh, the educational world of which I'm aware, the hold to that policy. And uh, we have no government grants for any kind of research or whatever. Uh, our, our, our federal government, by the way, is not, is not tempting many theology professors with, uh, with big grants in order to translate <laughs> the, you know, the scriptures or something. But you, you, that, that is a key issue. And, and the practicality of your book is, uh, is toward the end where you actually offer guidance to, to Christian institutions. And one of them is basically, I'll just say, travel light. You know, you better decide what you have to have, um, especially when it comes to external funding and whether or not you're, uh, you're ready to go without it. I, I, I don't think that's going to be a choice for, and you mentioned state by state. Yes, I think also program by program eventually is not going to be a choice. I also think, by the way, that some of this is non-governmental. So I, I think one big flashpoint for... Uh, for Christian colleges and universities is going to be the NCAA, which uh, mm -hmm. is not a government agency. But uh, boy, I tell you, they have huge authority and the accrediting agencies as well that I would argue are kind of quasi-governmental now uh, operating on behalf of the government. But uh, we're, we're, we've, got a lot to, we've got a lot to look at here. One other very important issue you mentioned, and uh, as an institutional president, the, the, this is something that shocks me when I discover it. And even in the last couple of days, I've discovered it. You have Christian institutions that do not state clearly what their Christian beliefs are in such a way that they would even be able to tell a court, uh, this is how we hire, and uh, this is how we admit students, and, uh, and, and, and th this, this is what we believe and teach, and it's non-negotiable. Uh, I'm an ardent confessionalist. I'm just, uh, just surprised at how unarmed uh, many Christian organizations are even to defend what their beliefs are because they're not clear about them. That's right. And, and I think you've hit the nail on the head for where these threats come from. So some of them come from the inside. And this is what I address in the book. You have some, some threats come from the inside. If you fail to clearly define and pursue your religious mission and you're not uh, uh, wise enough in your employment practices and in aligning those employment practices with your mission, you will be bringing in uh, into your organization threats to your own religious freedom. Those will manifest in lawsuits and, and, and employments. Um, you also have threats from the outside. And again, that can come from not clearly defining your religious mission. It uh, can also be co come from being too reliance, reliant on your partnership with the government or with other organizations. And so there are so many steps, whether it's higher education, whether it's small K-12 through religious schools, uh, churches, business owners, uh, there are many steps that we as Christians can take to start uh, anticipating religious freedom challenges before they arise 
and positioning our organizations and our ministries yeah. so that they can weather the storm that is ahead. And that's one of the reasons why we need to get prepared. Uh, it's just a matter of stewardship and a matter of being uh, not, not just innocent as doves, but also as shrewd as serpents. The author is Luke Goodrich, and the title is Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America. I I don't often say this on this program, but it's the kind of book that every pastor needs to read, uh, every ministry uh, leader, and uh, intelligent Christians. So it's also been a a wonderful conversation. Mr. Goodrich, thank you for the conversation, and, and thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Dr. Moeller, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your work. Thanks again to my guest, Luke Goodrich, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed this episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 more at albertmuller.com under Thinking in Public. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller. Albert Muller.